Have you ever had a time when you feel that what's, what, what you're thinking about or, or you've done or whatever is, is from the Lord, but you're still not fully certain, and then all of a sudden the Lord confirms it? Well, that happened to me today. As I had been preparing my message throughout the week, it was like, man, this, this does seem to be pretty nice, but I, you know, I'm still sometimes not sure. Then this morning, when, I, when we were listening to um, our Daily Bread devotional, one of the verses popped out and it just confirmed the whole message because uh, this is a promise that I'm going to be talking about a lot throughout the message. And the, the, the verse that, that came out in, in the, our daily bread this morning was 1 Chronicles 28.20. And this is when David is preparing Solomon to build the temple. David is at near the end of his life. He's getting ready, and Solomon's going to be taking over as king. And, and David charges Solomon with the task of building the temple. And in verse 20 it says, Then David said to his son Solomon, Be strong and courageous and act. Do not fear nor be dismayed. For the Lord, my God, is with you. He will not fail you, nor forsake you, until all the work for the service of the house of the Lord is finished. Praise the Lord. I want to open in prayer a little bit. Lord, we thank you for this time that we can come together and worship you and learn from you. I pray that you'll help us to have attentive hearts that you'll help us to truly get something from your word and that you will be here in power ministering to each of us as we partake of what you would have us to learn today. In Jesus' name, amen. In the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 3, Jesus said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In Luke 6, we see a little more of the backstory. In Luke 6, 17 to 20, we read this. Jesus came down with them and stood on a level place, and there was a large crowd of his disciples and a great throng of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the coastal region of Tyre and Sidon who had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases, and those who were troubled with unclean spirits were being cured. And all the people were trying to touch him, for power was coming out from him and healing them all. And turning his gaze toward his disciples, he began to say, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. This is actually a stark contrast to what Jesus said about the scribes and the Pharisees when he said, those who have no need, 
Those who are not sick have no need for a physician. What Jesus was saying to his disciples here actually reminded me of Psalm 34:18, which says, The Lord is near the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Coming to Jesus under the crushing weight of our sin is where the Christian life begins. I named my message the blessedness of contentment, which, w- which actually came as an inspiration from A.W. Tozer's book, The Pursuit of God. The second chapter is titled, The Blessedness of Possessing Nothing. Tozer starts the chapter with Matthew 5.3, reminding us that this is where the Christian life starts. We must come to Jesus possessing nothing crushed in spirit, and pray as the publican did, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. The exact words are not what's important. It's the attitude, the heart, the desire. For me, those words were, I need you. It was as simple as that. I tried praying all the different prayers that you might hear about praying in order to become a Christian. Didn't work. One day, the Lord just spoke to me and said, you need him. And I just turned and I said, I need you. And it was as simple as that. But my burden of sin went away that day. And what's so amazing about this is that we come to him with nothing, and he gives us everything. And as I read through the chapter, I was reminded of the passage in Hebrews where the preacher discusses contentment. For those of you who are not here when I did a series on the book of Hebrews, I refer to the author as the preacher because we don't really know who wrote it. And it is written in the style of a sermon, which is why the uh, person who wrote the commentary that I used extensively um, referred to him also as the preacher. So when you hear me talk about the preacher through this message, it's referring to the author of Hebrews. It's easier than saying a bunch of, you know, the author of Hebrews every time. In Hebrews 13, 5 and 6, we read this. Make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you, so that we confidently say, The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? As we look at this passage, let's examine three things. First, we will look at the character or conduct of contentment. Second, we will look at the contrast of contentment. And third, we will look at the confidence of contentment. 
The character of, con uh, of contentment is the daily walk we live. Vance Havner said this about the key to a man's character. We may never be martyrs, but we can die to self, to sin, to the world, to our plans and ambitions. That is the significance of baptism. We died with Christ and rose to new life. In 1 Timothy 3, 1-3, Paul told Timothy this, It is a trustworthy statement, if any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. An overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectful, hospitable, and able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. Paul is telling Timothy what kind of character to look for in one who aspires to be an overseer or elder. He must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate. And he continues down the list of character traits, ending with free from the love of money. The phrase Paul uses here is translated from the same Greek word as what the preacher tells us our character should look like. As a matter of fact, these are the only two times that this word is used in the Bible. I'm not going to butcher the original Greek. You can thank me for that. <laughs> but I will give you the three meanings it is supposed to convey. One of the things that, and I'm not a scholar by any means, but I have taken at least one semester of Greek, and I've learned enough to be dangerous. But um, a lot of times, as you can see, this one word is translated as a phrase. But it is also not just one meaning. There are actually three different kinds of meaning that are conveyed here. The first, which we see translated here, is not fun, fond of money. The second is not covetousness, which talks about greed in much more general terms. For instance, coveting your neighbor's property or reputation or friends. I really like that jacket over there, so I think I'm going to take it. Or, who does he think he is? Maybe I'll let people know what he's really like. Gossip steals a person's reputation just as much as walking onto somebody's property and stealing something. All theft at its root is motivated by covetousness. I want, so I'll take. The third understanding of this word is the opposite of these two. It's generous. As a matter of fact, that's how the preacher starts this whole topic in chapter 13. In Hebrews 13, 1 to 3, we read this. 
Let love of the brethren continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by this some have entertained angels. Without knowing it, remember the prisoners as though in prison with them, and those who are ill-treated, since you yourselves are also in the body. The preacher is reminding us that generosity of hospitality is not supposed to be the exception. It's supposed to be the norm. <coughs> this generosity is not going, is not giving of our leftovers. But as Jesus was sacrificially generous to us, our generosity is to be sacrificial. Jesus told us about the great judgment seat and how he is going to see our generosity. Matthew 25, 34 to 40, we read this. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? The king will answer and say to them, Truly, I say to you, the, the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even to the least of them, you did it to me. There's something we may miss if we don't look carefully at this passage. In verse 37, the righteous asked the king, when did we do this? That's an interesting thing that Jesus brings out here. One of the points he's making is that this generosity of the righteous is not keeping score. It's not self-conscious. It's not doing it because I want to do good works to earn my way to heaven. We can sum up generosity that the character of contentment in Christ brings to us in this way. We don't take, we give. And that's what contentment is all about. That's what contentment brings to us. Now the contrast of contentment is how contentment in the face of adversity is incomprehensible to the world. Has anyone ever tried to screw in a screw where the tip of the screwdriver is broken? It's actually 
pretty frustrating. Imagine being in a workshop trying to build fine cabinetry and all you have are broken tools. I wouldn't try. Making beautiful things with broken tools is not just frustrating, it's impossible yet. What is impossible with man is possible with God. For we are the broken tools God has chosen to build his church with. I'll even go further to say, as Paul said, we are the stones that he builds the church on the foundation of the apostles, the prophets, Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone. We're the material, not just the tools. We're all that broken rubble, and Jesus turns it into something beautiful. Vance Havner said this about God and broken things. God uses broken things. It takes broken soil to produce a crop, broken clouds to give rain, broken grain to give bread, broken bread to give strength. It's the broken alabaster box that gives forth the perfume. It's Peter, weeping bitterly, who returns to greater power than ever. Our salvation begins when we come to Christ with a broken and contrite heart. We could never be content until we did so. Now that we are saved, our contentment stands in stark contrast to those who do not know Christ. Paul talks about this contrast in very real terms in 2 Corinthians 4, 7-12. He says this, starting at verse 7, But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. Paul starts off giving the reason for the, I'm sorry. Paul starts off giving us the reason for the list that follows. It is all God and not us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not despairing. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Notice the but nots in this list. Not crushed. Not despairing. Not forsaken. Not destroyed. These are not just ordinary problems Paul's talking about here. The onlooker would say, you should be crushed but Jesus holds me up under the pressure. You should be in deep despair, but Jesus is my hope. Everyone has turned against you, not Jesus. And if God be for me, who can stand against me? I could kill you. You can kill this body. 
But my hope is in the resurrection. Continuing in verse 10 through 12, we read this. Always caring about in the body the dying of Jesus so that the life of Jesus also may be manifest in our body. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to the death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifest in our mortal flesh. So the death works in us, but life for you. In verses 10 through 12, Paul gives the key to this contrast. If I am bearing in my body the dying of Jesus, it is so his life may be manifest in my body. The resurrection changes everything. I was born a dead sinner. My trespasses and sins made things worse. Jesus raised me from the dead. Ephesians 2.5 says, Even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ, for by grace have you been saved. My body is still broken and dying, but my body is not who I am. It is just a temporary tent I'm camping in. So the character of contentment should be seen as a life of generosity, and the contrast of contentment is manifesting the resurrected life of Jesus in our mortal bodies. The comfort of contentment comes from relying on the promise Jesus made to us. And we're going to continue, I'm going to reread Hebrews 13, the second part of 5 through 6, which says this, Being content with what you have, for he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you, so that we confidently say, The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? Actually, the preacher reaches all the way back to Deuteronomy 31, where Israel is preparing to go into the promised land to remind us of this promise. Deuteronomy 31, 6-8 in the New um, uh, says this, Be strong and courageous, do not be afraid, or tremble at them. For the Lord your God is the one who goes with you. He will not fail you nor forsake you. Then Moses called to Joshua and said to him, In the sight of all Israel, Be strong and courageous, for you shall go with this people into the land which the Lord has sworn to his fathers to give them. You shall give it to them as an inheritance. The Lord is the one who goes ahead of you. He will be with you. He will not forsake you. He will not fail you. Do not fear or be dismayed. You may ask, why go all the way back to Deuteronomy? The answer is, it's important to understand the history of this promise. And at the beginning of the message, I read David giving the same promise to Solomon. This promise started back in Deuteronomy. And Moses didn't just say it. God said it. 
directly to Joshua. And David said it. This is a promise that has been consistent throughout the history of Israel. And now the preacher is reminding us of this same promise, that that promise was not just for them. It's for us. This is where 40 years after they left Egypt, and only two of them remained alive. Remember? God let all of them die in the wilderness except for the two spies, Caleb and Joshua. Here, again, Moses encourages Joshua to be courageous because God won't leave you or forsake you. This look back was to remind the readers and today, 2,000 years later, when we read this same promise, we can be confident God is still making good on his promise. On January 8, 1956, Jim Elliott, together with Nate Saint, Ed McCauley, Pete Fleming, and Roger Udarian, missionaries to Ecuador, took courage from God's promise and reached out to the Aka tribe. They knew the risk when reaching out to the Akas. They also knew that if they didn't go, the Akas would never hear the gospel. So they went, and they gave their all. They didn't make this decision lightly, and it was not even on that day that they made this decision. For Jim Elliot, that decision came seven years earlier, when after reading Luke 9, 24, for whosoever will save his life shall lose it, but whoever will lose his life for my sake, the same will save it. He wrote this in his journal. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for the grace and the promises that you've given to us. The fact that coming to you, broken, aware of our sin, and asking for your forgiveness, we can have eternal life. We thank you that you have given us more than just that one promise, that as we become Christians, your promise is you will never leave us or forsake us. That we can stand confident, that we can walk into the most difficult situation and know that you are holding us up. That your grace is going to give us the strength to get through anything. In Jesus' name, amen.